Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. What a what an amazing thought. Death is dead. Like you ever like just contemplate that statement. Death is dead. That is the heart in many ways of the good news of the gospel. Our greatest enemy that we try so hard to overcome, that we try so hard to like not think about we try to inoculate ourselves. It's not really that big of a deal. When we're young, we think it's never going to happen. But at the end of the day, there is a governor over all of us, and it's called death. And it's dead because of what Jesus has done. I hope and pray that that good news does not just hit you as some neat little intellectual fact or some neat little Sunday school lesson with a flannel graph that you could care less about and you just want to go away Uh, and do what you actually want to do. The message of the gospel is that for God so loved the world, he is redeeming a people back to himself that death even has lost its power over us. Guys, if that doesn't change your life, I'm going to give you a secret. Nothing will. Eat, drink, and be merry because you got no hope left. There is no hope outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have all hope given. And that hope, we're told, is a hope that will never disappoint. And it was validated, vindicated, sealed by the power of a man walking out of a grave. That, there is no other news you can ever possibly search for that will be more powerful, more life-changing, or better than that. What a gift that we have a Father in heaven that loves us that much, that we have an older brother in Jesus who willingly came and said, I'll pair that price. I'll carry that weight. I'll die so they don't have to. And I'll rise so that they can. What a father's heart. What a brother's heart in Jesus to come and to do that for us. And so kind of in that vein, and thank you, dads, for all that you do for your families. And there's a lot of in our culture that tries to devalue moms and dads and the nuclear family. But the nuclear family is the building block that God intended to be the foundational building block of society. And families ultimately don't work without moms and dads. And so we, we, we are grateful for you both, and we are grateful for you fathers for your presence in your family's life, however imperfect we all may be, to sit in the midst of your family to display the heart of the ultimate father who gave his life for the good of his people. And so thank you for what you do and how you give your life for the good of your family. Don't grow weary in doing that which is good. It's worth it. But I remember when our kids were younger, they were prone to doubt certain things. Has this ever happened to you as as moms and dads? Like, they, they, they didn't doubt everything, but it was usually expressed when things didn't happen within a particular time frame. 
For example, Tara and I would announce, we're going to go get ice cream today. Typically, it was for about two weeks a year when we vacationed in Mount Air because we didn't have $154 to get ice cream in Buffalo because that's about what it cost to get five baby cones. So it was like all year it was dairy, you know, dairy sweet. Just wait, kids, dairy sweet, dairy sweet, dairy sweet. And then what would, right? Isn't that so true? Right? I got to put a mortgage out of my house to get a Sunday for my kids. But, but here's what would happen. Uh, we, we would announce that we're going to get ice cream and our children's doubt would soon follow. Now, don't get me wrong. When you make the initial announcement, dads, moms, you can hear, right? Yeah, I'm so excited. We're going to get ice cream. But what would happen is, is after this like amazing declaration, even like five minutes go by and the initial exuberance would start to wane as they would go, are we going now? <sighs> no, we're not going now. And then, it, you know, all of a sudden, you know, every 10 seconds, are we going? Are we going? Are we going? See, Tara and I, when we, we learned early on, we're not going to tell our kids we're doing anything fun until about eight seconds before we're about ready <laughs> to leave. Because then what would happen is they would all of a sudden get lethargic and they'd get whiny and they would get... And it was just like, oh my gosh, we can't handle this. And each request had this decreased happiness that ultimately led to just despair. We're never going to get ice cream. We never get ice cream. All of my friends have had nine ice cream cones today and you just promised something and you just want to see us mad. Yes, because that's what we want to do. We want to just see you angry. Another thing that, that happened, like when our son Evan was older, when we were contemplating moving here to Iowa, right? We, we were like, okay, our kids are older. We need to bring them into this decision a little bit more. And so we're like, Evan's getting ready to go into his senior year. He's like swam at a really high level and he's going into that senior year. And we're like, oh man, you know, he doesn't necessarily get a decision, but he has an input and a voice into this. And so we brought him in at the end of the summer before we moved the following June. And we, you know, and he looked at us after we told him what we were thinking. He's like, get me out of New York. Get me to Iowa as quickly as possible. And then his next question was, when are we leaving? That was a mistake that we, because we were like, we don't really know. That's the worst thing we could have told him. But then we were like, ah, oh, we're thinking maybe April. Every, like, week. When are we going? When are we going? April comes and goes. We're never going to Iowa, are we? This is never going to happen, right? It's just this frustration kept building up. But ultimately, we went to get ice cream. And ultimately, here I am, here we are, we did move to Iowa. But as humorous as these moments may be, there is a lot of us in kids waiting for ice cream or kids waiting for the thing that they were told is going to happen. Doubts can so often raise its head in our lives when things don't go the way we planned or within the time frame that we think it should, especially when it comes to our faith in God and what he has promised. But what can we do about that? How do we respond when doubt begins to raise its head in our lives? So this morning, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 15 and see how and on what basis we should respond when doubt comes. And it captures this really amazing moment between God and Abram that will change the course of Abram's life going forward and for all God's people forevermore. 
So if you have your Bible with you, let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. It will also be on the screens. Uh, I'm going to assume if you've got your phone or tablet out, you're not texting, you are reading the word because we assume the best of you. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, that wasn't in the script. Um, so this is the word of God out of Genesis chapter 15. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I supposed to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. So you got to remember, we keep going back to this because it's important that we remember. In Genesis chapter 12, God initiates a call with Abram that is tethered to a promise. This call was for Abram to leave all he knew because God was going to bless Abram. He was going to give him offspring. He was going to give him land. And then in chapter 13, the promise of blessing, numerous offspring and land is reaffirmed again. But by Genesis 15, here's the state of the promise. 
None of it has happened. Not a single bit of it. Abram and his wife Sarai, they're still childless. The land promised is still not theirs, inhabited by all kinds of people. Not even one bit of the land belongs to them. In fact, a lot about Abram's decision to follow God, the truth of the matter is on paper, it looks dumb. It looked like he just is chasing the wind and chasing something foolish to the detriment of his life and his whole family. Sure, he's received some blessings by God's grace. He got wealth from his sketchy time in Egypt. He got an impressive victory over marauding kings who were pillaging the land of Canaan, but nothing to the scale of what God has promised in chapters 12 and 13. See, despite the increased wealth, Despite his amazing victory, despite his faithfulness to not accept a bribe from the king of Sodom, showing that he really did trust God's work to make him into a great nation, Abram, in many ways, is no better off. He has no child. He has no land. Day after day, month after month, year after year, bupkis. We don't know exactly how much time has passed between 12, chapter 12 and chapter 15, but it has no doubt been a, been a while. It's been a season. One commentator I read thinks it's been about 10 years that has transpired between the initial call. And it is into this context, waiting, hoping, little seeds that something is happening, but ultimately nothing to show for it. He just puts himself out there and rejects this offer of more increased wealth. And here he is sitting in the midst of promises unfulfilled from his perspective. It is into this context that God speaks in eight to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, saying, Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Once again, God establishes a fundamental promise with Abraham, or Abram. He'll become Abraham later. That, that, that's a bit of a foreshadowing. He doesn't need to be afraid. God is his protector. He's his provider. He's his benefactor. Even though he's, he's passed up a sure thing in what the king of Sodom offered him, he has trusted in a reliable and powerful God, Yahweh. And he will give Abram a tremendous reward. However, unlike Genesis 12 and 13, where Abram does not speak back, Abram does speak back in Genesis 15. Oh Lord, when will you, what will you give me? I am childless and the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to get all my stuff. You've given me no offspring. Abraham is asking him, what are you doing? God, what are you going to give me? Have you given me a blank, a, a void check, a defunct promissory note? What is it? Why does it matter if I gain the inherit, all this inheritance and reward if it's not even going to go to a kid of my own? Can't you see, God? I'm childless. What is the point of all this? And what we see in God's promise in verse 1 isn't quite enough for Abram in that moment. It isn't quite enough to alleviate his concern. The power of God's promise is met with doubt. We've all been there, haven't we? Throughout life, we come to moments and seasons of doubt and discouragement. 
things not going the way that we thought they would or the way we think they should. We place our trust in something, believing it's not misplaced. I'm not climbing the ladder of the wrong ladder up the wrong wall. I know this is right, but then time begins to pass and our situation remains unchanged and may even get worse. We feel out of control, powerless, frustrated. We feel desperate. These are moments where, where we ask, is this, is what or who I trusted it? Is it even worth it? Is it even reliable? Did I do something really stupid with the decision that I made? Should I go somewhere else? We can even doubt God himself like this. I remember in 2007, Tara and I moved from Southwest Florida to Syracuse, New York to start a new church with another family that was close to us. I was on staff at a mega church, about 2,200 people. I was offered my dream role to be one of their primary communicators and lead elders on a multi-campus uh, place in luscious Southwest Florida. We live like a mile from the beach. It rains and the sun is still shining. And this desire to move to Syracuse, New York where the sun didn't really shine as much up there, does it, guys? <laughs> People aren't very happy in Syracuse, are they? And we moved to this place a thousand miles from all of our family, everyone we knew. We just knew this one couple, and we had a call of God on our life to do his work in a city of great need. And we arrived nervous, we arrived optimistic, we arrived full of faith, and we had three young kids, three and a half and under, all in diapers. Our optimism quickly faded. We were a thousand miles from family. We were lonely. We were drowning in toddlers. We found the culture extremely difficult to break into. And soon we were filled with doubt. And will this church even get off the ground? Can we survive these toddlers? 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 Sorry, sorry. Well, hold on. Flashback, flashback. I may need a minute. Will we ever feel at home? Because we hate this place. Did we make the dumbest decision we've ever made? God, where are you? We moved here for you. Not even for me. We moved here for you. Isn't it? It's not supposed to be like this, is it? What is going on? Where, when are we going to you know, get to the place we thought that we were going to get to? And we found that we started to doubt God's love for us, his provision for us. We even began to struggle with, God, are you really real? Is your grace really a thing? Is you, what, what do you mean by your strength? Because it looks like, like everything is stronger than you. God, it looks like, are you really a sovereign God in control of all things? Are your promises even right? Is your power really in us? Because I feel really darn weak right now. These are difficult moments, aren't they? We've all been there, haven't we? When our faith is tested and what we've placed our faith in is tested, is God trustworthy? Times of doubt prove the reliability of not only our faith, but also in what we have placed our faith in. John Calvin, who was a pillar of the Protestant Reformation, wrote this. He says, surely 
while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Here's the first big point. Doubt comes to us all. I'm reminded of John the Baptist, a powerful man of God, whose task was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, a great man of faith, a powerful teacher who stood boldly for God, who even when he saw Jesus walking said, Behold, the Lamb of God who was slain, who tells his own disciples, Go follow that guy. Don't follow me. But then he found himself in prison, facing certain death at the hand of a king. Doubt took hold of him too. And while in prison, he sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus. Are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we look for another? In other words, Jesus, I'm vouched for you. I played my part. I'm here in prison about ready to die. Are you really the Messiah? Because if you are, would I be here where I am? And Jesus responds, assuring him. I am the one the whole world's been waiting for. Look at all the things I'm doing. The blind see, the lame walk. Good news is preached. Don't fall away, John, because of your situation. John, like Abram, though he doubted, cast their doubt in the right direction to God himself. They didn't fester on it. They didn't let it define them. They certainly didn't rest in it, they appealed to God himself. See, when we doubt, we should follow their example and appeal to God himself. When in doubt, seek God. Think of passages of scripture like uh, Philippians chapter 4, cast your anxieties on him. First Peter, cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. I don't know about you, but, but there's so much in our culture that when we have doubt or uncertainty, we, we almost feel like it's mature just to sit in that doubt and uncertainty. And it becomes the very thing that we're fixed on. Our, our entire thoughts are wrapped up in that. My emotions are wrapped up in that. Like if this bottle symbolizes what I'm anxious, fearful, or doubting, I just stare at it. And it becomes to fester and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets closer and closer and closer. And pretty soon, the thing I hate, the thing that's killing me, is the thing that's now my God. Because all I'm doing is focusing on it. And what we see in the scriptures is no, instead of fixing on it, we lift our eyes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we put it to Him and we allow it to shrink in His presence. And so God responds directly to Abram's doubt. This man shall not be your heir, Abram. Your very own son will be your heir. Not only is he reaffirming his promise, but he's graciously adding more clarity. Abraham, you will have a child and he will be your own son. You will not have to adopt one like Eliezer. A son will come to you. And as, as if this wasn't enough, Abraham is then brought outside and God says, look up. Look up at the stars. 
the very creator who made them said, look at them. That's what your offspring is going to be like. Count them if you can. I can't help but to try to put myself in Abram's shoes. Imagine the power of that moment. His covenant-keeping, gracious, all-powerful shield, his creator, he doesn't shy away from the doubt. He doesn't scold him for doubting. Instead, he speaks his powerful word of promise against the backdrop against, uh, of the immense work of creation. No doubt the magnitude of the billions of stars in view not only gave Abram great hope for future offspring to come, but certainty in the God who will accomplish it. If God can create all of this, he can do what he promised to me. So we see in verse 6, Abram's response. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Oh, there's a gospel foundational seed right there that the rest of the scriptures unfold. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to take a pause out of Genesis and move to the book of Romans, chapter 4, which teaches more on the life of Abram so that we can see more direct linkages between the seeds that are planted in what we see in Abram's life to how it unfolds after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, this is a decision we make. However, we, I'm sorry, uh, all Abram had to go on was God's word. All he had to go on was his promise. And we see here for Abram, that was enough. That was enough. He trusted the creator of heaven and earth. Abram's faith was not even, it was in the God, it was in God himself who gives the promise. And he trusted the word that this God spoke, which means the promise is reliable because of who gave the word. Doubt came to Abram. In his doubt, he sought God. God spoke and Abram believed. So likewise, doubt will come to us. And when in doubt, seek God through his word, because God's word births faith. This is a decision we make. There's going to be moments you're not going to feel like doing this, but we've got to stop letting the, 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 the caboose of feeling drive the train of faith. These are decisions we make. We must appeal to God for help as Abram did. Take our meager faith and help us in our unbelief. God reassured Abram in his grace and the strength of his promise. Because God and his promise is the reliable bedrock for the anchor of our souls. Despite the uncertainty of life, despite the frivolity of emotions, other people and circumstances, God is sure and steady, never changing. Against the mighty storms of doubt, God remains and gives his people what they need to endure, unmoved by the surety of his faithfulness. In what or whom have you placed your faith? Is it the, if not the God of the Bible, what is it that you have built in your life that is more compelling to you than a resurrected king? How can that possibly compare with the maker of heaven and earth? That's like standing on straw on top of a lake instead of on a mountain. 
If you have placed your faith in God, I pray you are able to find great rest that he holds you, that his word is enough, that his promises are sure. This is proved by the resurrection of Jesus who conquered both sin and death on your behalf and against the unwavering backdrop of his character and the great work that he's promised or that he's done in Christ, that his promises stand for you even when all hell has broken loose in your life. Because of Abram's faith, God judges him righteous, meaning that Abram has a right standing with God. And it will be from this faith, Abram will live out the rest of his life. He will not get it right all the time. In fact, he will blow it again in the next chapter, by the way. But by faith, Abram walks with God and is declared righteous. Verse six is a profound moment, guys. Setting the course or setting the course, it is, it is only by faith in God that we are made to be in right standing with him. We cannot earn this on our own. Just like Abraham couldn't, only God himself can declare our right standing before him. And he is setting up here, it is by faith in my word and in who I am that you have right standing with me. And we are called to follow Abram's example by placing our faith in God and his word of promise from that faith, we are to live our lives. However, unlike Abram, who was called to look forward, we are called to look backward in what he has already done. But the nature of faith is the same. Complete trust. The biblical concept of faith is not one of mental assent. It is more like a, a drowning person in the middle of the ocean clinging to a life preserver. That's the biblical picture. Meaning, if I let go of this, I'm doomed. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this moment in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. In hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Despite overwhelming reasons, Abram didn't waver in his trust of God. He took him at his word. His faith grew. He trusted God would make him the father of many nations. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And so God declared him righteous. But what happens in Genesis 15, we're told, was not just for Abram's benefit. It was for our benefit, for your benefit. It was for all of his future offspring. Like him, they will be declared righteous by their faith alone. More specifically, we have a culture that loves faith and faith, hope and hope, 
prayer for prayers. I believe in prayer. I don't even know what that statement means on its own. See, we're to have our faith in something. Our prayers go to someone. Our hope is in something. And what are we to have that faith in? The power to save his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we bring nothing but need to the table of salvation. We cannot earn this gracious judgment of God. We only bring weakness, doubt, and sin. The only thing we can do is trust in him and his promise to save us in the way that he reveals. And we cling to that every day. When it doesn't make sense, we cling to it. When, it, when we don't feel it, we cling to it. When doubt comes, we believe the Lord, period. I feel abandoned, but I know you will never leave me nor forsake me. I feel as if you, 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 that I'm not your child, but I believe in Jesus, so I believe that I am your child. This is what Abram does, and it was counted to him as righteous. And then in verse 7, God reminds Abram he was the one who brought him out of his home and that he will be faithful to give him offspring and give him land. And Abram's like, how am I going to know that's going to come true? And God says, does something remarkable. He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get these animals. I want you to cut them in half. Very common practice today. Right? He takes these animals, cuts them in half, and lays them side by side. Except the two, the birds don't get cut in half. They, and Abram waits. And then the powerful presence of God comes to Abram. And he reaffirms everything. He's, as the sun went down, showing the vision has moved into its second day. Verse 12 says that a deep sleep fell on Abram and the Lord spoke, telling him he will not see the fulfillment of what has been promised completely, but he should know for certain that it will happen. Abram is told that his people will be sojourners like himself and will be servants in another nation. They will be brought, through, brought out through the great work of God and they will take great wealth of possessions with them and this will all take place 400 years from now when they go to this nation, become slaves, come out of this nation with great wealth, then they will come into the land that I'm promising to give you. And then Abram saw something like a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch representing God's very presence pass between these animals. What is that all about? See, in the ancient world, covenants were made far more dramatically than we make them today. We sign pieces of paper. They cut animals in half. And here's what God is saying. What, what would happen if we entered into a covenant like this? We would hold hands and walk between the animals. And that is a sign that says, if I violate this, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's how serious they took these covenants. But notice, God does not allow Abram to pass through the animals. God himself passes through the animals. Saying, Abram, I'm going to do everything that I told you I would do. Let what happened to me happen to these animals if I don't fulfill them. The act of God walking through alone is for both of them. God knows Abram can't keep the agreement. He knows none of Abram's offspring can either. He says, even if you or your offspring cannot keep covenant with me, let me take on flesh and be brutally slaughtered. 
Let me be the God of life who tastes death. I'll do it for you too, Abram. I'll walk through for both of us. A covenant of grace has been made confirming powerfully for Abram and us that God will save his people and it rests entirely on God's shoulders. He is the initiator of it and he's the finisher of it. All Abram has to do is believe it and live like he does believe it. In other words, Abram's doubt can be put to rest not only because he, God promised it, but it's been confirmed with an oath. It's been confirmed with a weighty covenant. That, and, and, and the promise connected to the covenant is meant to bring rest and strong encouragement to Abram to hold tightly to the hope that's set before him. And so we see Abram's doubt journey. Doubt comes. God is sought. God word, God's word births faith. God's covenant brings rest. God's covenant brings rest. Like I said a moment ago, Abraham will not always live this out perfectly, but the direction of his life is now set. He will live by faith and not by sight, resting on God's covenant. And as we'll see, God is faithful to everything he promised, and the rest of Scripture shows God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. Like Abraham, we are, we are only made right with God when we realize that ultimately all of this points to Jesus Christ. See, God did take on flesh for his people. He did offer it up to be slaughtered for their unfaithfulness. God, the God of life did die so his people wouldn't have to. And like Abraham, we're only made right with God by grace through faith. We put our trust in the God who is trustworthy, who promised to redeem us, who established a covenant of grace to convince us and then fulfilled it entirely in Jesus. Jesus is our rest. He is where our faith is to be placed. He is who the word is ultimately pointing to, that every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus. It was sealed by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection from the grave. Jesus is the sure and steady anchor for our souls, meant to bring us rest and strong encouragement to hold tightly to the hope that is set before us. And so we see the pattern now for us. Doubt will come. When it does, seek God in his word. Don't just go to Facebook and look at what people post, these little tritisms about God. Actually read what God has told us. And read it in its entirety. God's word births faith in Christ, and Christ is our rest. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I'm going to close here. Two questions. Well, a lot of questions, two categories. What is your pattern when doubt comes currently? Do you let it fester? Do you feel you have control of all the circumstances and relationships around you? Do you consume your conversations and thoughts with your anxieties and doubts? Or do you seek God through his word, finding your rest in Jesus Christ who has borne the curse of sin for you and rose from the grave redeeming your past, securing your future, and who walks with you now? Listen, through the path of life, there's gonna be all sorts of storms that we're gonna encounter. 
But I remember, uh, you know, I had a first several years of being married to Tara. I kept looking at her and I'm like, does she really love me? I look in the mirror and I'm like, clearly there, there's something going on here. I'm not sure she really loves me. And I would keep asking her, do you love, are, do you really love me? Finally, after a number of years, she looks at me and she goes, I've moved across the country to be with you. I've walked an aisle, taken your last name, and I wear your wedding ring. I have bore three of your children. What more do I have to do to convince you that I love you? That was like a sledgehammer to the face. These are immovable facts of our history together that proves she loves me. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're doubting, is God for me? If you're doubting, does God love me? If you're doubting, does God hope for my future? Number one, don't lay promises on God. He never promised you. But look at the promises that he's already given you. And then look back to the fact that he came and sent his, or that he sent his son to take on flesh and blood and that he died on a cross, an immovable fact of history. You never need to doubt God's love. You never need to doubt the certainty of his promises because they're rooted in historical immovable facts that transcend your circumstance. Appeal to the God who did that. Seek the God who wrote this and wait on him to minister to your heart. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I pray that you see today that we are only made right with God through our faith in his son, Jesus. It is not by your religious effort. It is not by how much good you do. How often you come to church. It is coming to Christ with nothing but your need and trusting he has done it all for you. And then we live as if we know it's all true. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, I thank you that you are a God that doesn't shy away from our doubt. You don't shy away from our fears. You don't shy away from moments where we just wonder, is any of this real? Is any of this make any sense at all? That God, uh, that, 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 that you want us to bring that to you. And you're not going to scold us. You're not going to. You're not going to uh, just kind of destroy. It. But God, you you will hear us, and through your words, you will speak back to us what it is we need to hear. And so, God, I pray that when doubt comes, we would seek you through your word, that we would appeal to you in our prayers. And that through your word, you would birth faith in us to see the excellencies of Jesus and all the promises that you've given us in him, and that we would stand on them, even though the wind and the waves will beat against us and the storms of life will beat against us. We know that Jesus is our sure and steady anchor. And if there's anyone here who has not yet placed their faith in you, oh God, may today be the day that they call out to you for salvation and then live the rest of their life for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.